Well, this morning um, we're coming to what is one of the most striking prayers in the New Testament and indeed in the whole of Scripture. And it's a prayer that, as it was read to us a few minutes ago, I hope you saw, just underlines one of the central convictions of the Apostle Paul about the Christian life. And that conviction of Paul's is this. If we could only grasp something of the love Jesus Christ has for us, it would revolutionize our life as a church and our relationships with one another and with the world around us. If we could only grasp something of Christ's love for us, that would totally transform us. Paul asks God for the power to comprehend Christ's love here. And that's something we're going to have to do as we look at this passage together. So this morning we're going to attempt to explore something of Christ's vast love for his people. See, straight away there's a problem that faces us. Because for all of us, love is a slippery word. See, how do we feel when someone says they love us? What do we mean when we say we love someone else? See, human love, it's celebrated in music, in poetry, in fiction, in film. On one level, our world is in love with love. But on another level, many of us feel pretty ambivalent about human love. And that ambivalence about the love we feel and receive from one another can often leave us confused when we hear about God's love in the pages of Scripture. See, love, it's deeply attractive to us. We all long to love and to be loved, whether that's in our families, in our friendships, in romantic relationships. But at the same time, we fear that love, for all its desirability, is actually a weak and fragile thing in a hostile world. But all too often, the love we long for just cannot survive against the harsh realities of life. And a good example of that in recent Western culture was the so-called Summer of Love in 1967. Just a few slides there. That was sort of the high point it was seen of the countercultural movement in the 1960s. Thousands of young people gathering in San Francisco and across the United States to express themselves artistically, politically, sexually. And when you look at the accounts of the people who were there, there was this huge sense of optimism that this movement of young people was going to change the world. And one of the most famous slogans of that era was, Make love, not war. I like to claim I'm a child of the 70s, so I wasn't there personally. But make love, not war. And the belief that was held by many of that generation of 67 was that human love had the power to transform their world. But you see, that optimism quickly died in the face of the Cold War, in the face of the conflict in Vietnam, and the gradual loss of idealism in the 1970s. See, for many of the people who were there in 1967, love was still a wonderful thing, it was a beautiful thing, but it just wasn't strong enough to overcome hate and political power and greed. And while that generation of the Summer of Love experience is an experience shared by countless other generations throughout history, Love is beautiful. We, we instinctively feel it should be celebrated. But what can it really do in the face of selfishness and cruelty and death 
And again, that perception of human love just transfers across when we think about God's love. We're, we're products of our culture. We can't help that. So often, we like the idea of God loving us. We sing great songs about God's love for us. But often in our darker moments, we, we doubt that God's love really has the power to change us, to change our lives. See, the fact that Jesus loves us, even when we accept that it's true, just doesn't seem powerful enough to change things. We still lose our jobs. We still fail miserably in the struggle against sin. We still hold grudges against family members that we just cannot shift. We still say and do things that hurt those closest to us. What difference does being loved by Jesus make at times like that? Can Jesus' love really change us if we grasp it? Well, the Apostle Paul believes it can. And if you think about the love of Christ as something appealing, attractive, but ultimately sort of ineffectual, powerless against the world, then Paul completely disagrees with you. And he prays this prayer for the Ephesians to help them see the power of God's love. You see, in this prayer, in chapter 3, Paul's central desire is for God to strengthen the Ephesians with power to grasp, verse 18, how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. According to Paul, it was vital to the health of that church that they pray for the power from God to know the love Christ has for them. And it's my belief that this prayer is in the pages of Scripture because it is a prayer that every church needs to pray throughout their history. We need to grasp something of Christ's love for us. Because only understanding Christ's love for us will we be able to love others around us and will our lives actually change and become more Christ-like and more honouring to him. See, as I mentioned last week, September is a busy month in the life of our church, in our, in our work lives, in our family lives. And again, what will keep us going in the face of that busyness? How can we retain a sense of joy as we serve one another in the church, as we serve people in our homes, as we serve people in our workplaces? To put bluntly, what reason do we have as Christians to get up in the morning? And a central part of that, the answer Paul would give to that, is found in this prayer. If you're a Christian here today, you get out of bed in the morning, you serve the people around you, and you make sacrifices for the people around you, because you are loved by Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ made the ultimate sacrifice for you, and because as you live for him, his love can transform you and change you into the man or woman he wants you to be. See, if we are going to live for Jesus in the coming months, in whatever situations he calls us to, then we need to know his love for us. And we need to be changed by that knowledge. Paul is blunt. You cannot live for Jesus Christ without an understanding of how vast his love is for you. You cannot live for him without knowing how vast his love is for you. And that's what Paul prays for in this, in this prayer. And that's what we're going to look at 
this morning. But before we do that, there are some objections to dwelling on Christ's love. See, some people say, well, doesn't a prayer asking God to help me see how much God loves me, doesn't that sound a bit self-indulgent? See, Paul prays that we'll know more of Christ's love, but isn't that a dangerous prayer to pray? And I think it's important to point out there are dangers for any church in dwelling on Christ's love. You might be surprised by that. But there are dangers there. First of all, we can become self-indulgent in that. It's possible for a church to meditate on the love Jesus has showed them in such a way that we turn in on ourselves. A church like ours could choose to bask in the love of Jesus, but show no concern for people who know nothing about him. And then we just become the Christian equivalent of the hippies in the summer of love, indulging in the experience of being loved, but with little or no concern for the outside world. It's all about us and how we're feeling. And that is a danger. Another danger is that we can sentimentalise Jesus. See, it's possible for us to so celebrate Jesus' love for us that we overlook other aspects of his character, his power, his holiness, his call on us to follow him and to get rid of sin in our lives. And the church in the West has probably fallen into this trap more and more over the years. So we depict Jesus more as our heavenly boyfriend than as our Lord and Saviour. So it is possible for us to sentimentalise Jesus. And the third danger is that we can puff ourselves up with pride. We think, well, well, if Jesus thinks I'm so special, well, clearly I am. Clearly I'm a massively gifted individual. Jesus tells me that. You see, if pride is the consequence, then, then surely we need to be careful of talking about the love of Christ at all. Well, again, I want to say there are dangers in dwelling on Christ's love for us. But Paul's response to these objections would surely be that each one of them is a failure to truly comprehend who Jesus is and what his love is for us. And that is why he prays so passionately here that we get Jesus' love right. We get it right. We understand it. And we experience it. See, Paul would say there is no place for self-indulgence in our response to Christ's love. Elsewhere in this letter to the Ephesians, back in chapter 2, verse 10, Paul reminds us that if we have received Christ's love, then we are God's workmanship, verse 10, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. See, God has work for us to do. He lavishes his love on us, and then he sends us out to make him known. That is part of his great love for us. It's not enough just to bask in his love. God calls us to serve him in it. And as for making Jesus' love sentimental, well, chapter 1, verse 7 of Ephesians reminds us that if we are Christians, we've been brought back to God through Jesus' blood. Jesus suffered and died so that we could be forgiven by God. His love was no easy sentiment or warm feeling. It cost him his life. Therefore, it is wrong for us to sentimentalize him. We need to see his love for what it is and what it cost him. And then as for pride, well, chapter 2 again knocks that on the head. Chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. See, Paul's clear. Christ's love is a vast love 
because it is lavished on people who don't deserve it. People like you and people like me. So it's no easy thing to meditate on the love of Christ because we will not always see ourselves in a good light. But nonetheless, Paul says it is vital that we understand Christ's love. And that's the heart of his prayer in verses 16 to 19. I'll just read those out for us again. Paul prays, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And I'm not going to spend much time this morning explaining the detail of these verses because I believe on one level they're quite straightforward in their meaning. But what I do want to explore is how experiencing the love Jesus has for us enables us to live faithful lives for him. And then I want to apply that love of Christ to some of the relationships we're involved in in the coming term. So this prayer, it comes at a turning point in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. See, up to now, Paul's been describing on a cosmic scale God's purposes in calling together a church made up of every nation, Jew and Gentile. See, God has brought the church into existence by sending Jesus into the world to die on a cross and rise again. And Paul sums up God's purposes in forming his worldwide church in chapter 3, verses 10 to 11. God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purposes, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, God called together the church to demonstrate his wisdom, his goodness and his glory to creation. And Maudlin Road Church is part of that demonstration. See, God's intention was that as the angels and other spiritual powers see the church in action, they will be amazed at how God has called together sinful people like us and changed us and enabled us to live together due to Christ's sacrifice for us. See, modern Road Church is meant to demonstrate the glory of God in the heavens. When, when the heavens look down, when the angels look down and see us sitting here together, they see us having tea and coffee at the end, they see us lugging chairs around, singing together, opening the Bible together, laughing together, crying together. That's a demonstration of God's glory. Because only God can gather together people like that, to share lives together with that intensity and that love. You see, as we sit here at Mother Node this morning, we are part of God's eternally planned purpose to display his glory and wisdom throughout all creation. And in doing that, he has lavished his love on us and shown himself to be a loving God. See, the church here at Modern Road exists because of the love of Jesus Christ. Without Jesus' love, we would not be here. None of us would have the relationship with God that those Christians here have 
this morning. And so Paul's prayer here builds on the reality that the beginning of the church is Christ's love. And so for the church to be healthy, we need to grow in our knowledge and experience of Christ's love. So let's look for a few moments at the difference knowing Christ's love for us should make in our lives. See, there are at least three areas of our lives where knowing Jesus' love for us has the power to transform us. The first of those is of our knowledge of God. Knowing Christ's love changes how we view God. You see, in my experience of of my own heart and of talking with other believers, Christians generally fluctuate between two unbiblical poles in the way we think about God. At one pole, we see God as the all-powerful creator of the universe. We see him as the eternal, sovereign, terrifying God, the great big God of the Psalms, of the Old Testament. And Paul agrees with that picture. As we've already seen, this letter to the Ephesians depicts something of God's eternal purposes in calling together the church. There is no doubt about it. The God of the Bible is a big and powerful God. But you see, problems arise when we draw out from that that therefore God cannot be interested in my life. When we conclude that because of God's greatness, our problems, our struggles, are of little importance to him. See, for some of us, when we think of God's greatness, we end up thinking of God as unfeeling and unconcerned about us. But the other pole, the other extreme, God is deeply concerned about it, feels deeply for us, he's intimately involved in the details of our lives, but to that extent, he becomes almost domesticated, And all this domestic God is interested in is increasing our personal levels of comfort. So he waits around to give us a good day, to bless us, to bless our children. But ultimately, he's unconcerned with history, with the world. The only thing he's concerned about is our individual lives. And that just domesticates God. It shrinks him down. It lies about God and who he really is and how he's revealed himself to be. But in this prayer, Paul prayed that we might see God through the lens of the vast love Jesus has for us, the width and length and height and depth of Christ's love for us. And when we see God through the lens of Jesus' love, then we're protected from either of those extremes of seeing God as too big or too small. See, turn with me for a minute to chapter 1 and verse 4 of Ephesians. You see, here Paul is demonstrating just how big God's purposes are, how eternal his purposes are. Verse 4. For God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. See, Paul's saying God's purposes are vast. Our God is an awesome God. He is bigger than you can ever comprehend. But then look at the following words. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons, through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will. See, this vast God is a God whose purposes are driven by his love. See, the love of Christ is underpinning the vastness of God's promises. The love of Christ shows us that our God is both majestic and all-powerful, and he is loving and concerned about the good 
of his people. See, in Christ God called every Christian here this morning to follow him before the creation of the world. An amazing demonstration of his vastness and his eternal nature. But his purpose was to lavish love on us, to call us his children, to get us to call him our father. See, Paul wants us to get a true knowledge of God in this prayer in chapter 3. And to gain that knowledge, we need to see God through the love of Jesus. So knowing Jesus' love for us transforms our knowledge of who God is. But knowing Christ's love also transforms our knowledge of ourselves. Because as with our view of God, so with the way we view ourselves, we fluctuate massively between two extremes, either viewing ourselves more highly than we ought, or despairing of ourselves, on the other hand. We're either foolish in our pride, or we're foolish in despising ourselves. You see, low self-esteem can be a huge problem among Christians I speak to. And perversely, that actually flows out of pride. We look down on ourselves because we somehow believe that we were good people. We somehow believe that God must be impressed with me. And then suddenly the reality of our sin, the reality of our failures, hits us like a ton of bricks. And we despair. We give up. We think, why would God bear with me when I've deceived myself about who I am? But Paul knows the key to a right and healthy view of ourselves. He tells us, pray that you might grasp the love Christ has for you. See, if your struggle is with pride, with thinking too highly of yourself, then open your eyes to what Christ had to go through to call you his child. Jesus couldn't just accept you as you are. Jesus had to suffer and die on a cross to forgive you for your pride and your sin. And you were utterly helpless to save yourself. See, when we look at Christ's love, there is no place for pride in the way we view ourselves. But there's also no place for despair. We need to look at Christ and say, He died for me. He chose to go to the cross for me. He chose to lavish His great love on me and call me His own. And when we look at Christ's love, we have to say, I am deeply precious to God. I am precious to Him and He cares for me and His love will never let me go. See, each one of us this morning needs to drink deeply from this well of Christ's love for us. For only a knowledge of Jesus' love can sustain us in the challenges of the coming year. See, we don't know what this year holds for us individually, as a church, in our families. But we can pray with Paul that we might grasp the love of Christ to equip us for what the future holds. That we would know this love that surpasses knowledge. That we would experience what it means to be loved by the Son of God. And that we might meditate on that every day in the midst of struggle and trial and difficulty. See, Paul's praying here that we remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Paul's praying that we remember his struggle and his pain as he cried out to his father that he might be spared the cross. As he cried out to his father that he wouldn't have to drink that cup of God's wrath for our sins. And as Jesus prayed that prayer in Gethsemane, he clearly saw the choice that was before him. He could choose to go to the cross. And in a very real sense, the cross meant hell for Jesus. Experiencing the wrath of God on a sinful humanity. Being cut off for the first time in eternity from his Father in heaven. Or he could refuse the cross. And today none of us would be here. See, the choice that Jesus faced in Gethsemane was a stark one. Go to hell or lose us. And Jesus chose to go to hell. That was his vast love for us. So Paul is saying, never doubt the love Christ has for you. He has demonstrated it at the supreme cost to himself. If you are a Christian here this morning, Jesus has rescued you and brought you into the family of God. Make no mistake, you are loved. And you're loved by Jesus Christ. And nothing can change that. That is a point in history that cannot change. And you're loved by the one person in all creation whose opinion ultimately matters. So rejoice in that. Pray that you will know more of that, Paul urges us. And in the final area, where knowing Christ's love can transform us, is in our closest human relationships, how we relate to one another. And I want to look briefly at three of the closest relationships we have in our lives and how knowing Jesus' love for us can transform those relationships. See, first of all, knowing Christ's love can transform our families. See, family relationships, they, they are hard work. Parents fight with children. You know what? My son doesn't talk back too much now. He's only eight months old. But I'm looking forward to that moment when he starts. Children fight with one another. And, and we all know that grudges and bad blood can develop within families. That it takes years, decades to resolve, if at all. So how does knowing Christ's love for us transform those relationships? Just let me just read verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3 again. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being. See, Paul says here, if you want to know what a father is, or more broadly, if you want to know what a parent is, look to God. And look to God through the lens of Jesus' love for you. See, God is the ultimate standard of fatherhood and parental love, Paul tells us. And Jesus Christ has made God known to us. So as we pray to understand more of Christ's love for us, we will in turn be moved to emulate God's fatherly love with our own children. Again, when I, when I became a father in January... I was amazed that night at, at how beautiful my son was. 
And again, I know I should say handsome, but beautiful was the word that hit me. This is my son. There was an immediate connection there in the midst of tiredness. I was left in no doubt that I loved Noah. I ever, a few weeks later, I remember sitting in his room at four o'clock in the morning when he just kept on crying. And the feelings I had for him were far from loving. And I found myself asking the question, why is this hard? How can I love my son when it feels like my emotional resources have run dry, when he's just being difficult? And the answer that came to me was, I need to learn from the compassion and kindness of God as my father. I thought when I became a father, I'll have all these great illustrations of my love for my son, and therefore that's like God's love for me. But instead I see how far short I fall of God's love for me in my own relationships. I need to pray that God would show me his love more clearly, that I might demonstrate that in my own family. I need to learn from God's compassion, God's fatherly compassion, in the way I treat my family. We all need to learn from God how to transform our family lives and make them more Christ-like, more honouring to him. The same applies to our marriages, for those of us who are married here this morning. Again, we have the greatest standard imaginable for how we should relate to one another, and that is the love of Christ. Paul makes it clear in chapter 5 of Ephesians. Turn, turn over the page there for me for a minute. See, in chapter 5, Paul's addressing Christian husbands and wives. And, and Paul doesn't tell the Ephesian husbands to love their wives because that's obeying God's law or because it's the right thing to do. He could have said that, but he doesn't. Instead, he points husbands to the love Christ has for them and then he tells them to love their wives in the same way. Verses 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You've received love, husbands. You have received Christ's lavish love, husbands. How dare you reserve your love from your wife? How dare you keep it back from her? Open your eyes to Christ's love. Paul's already prayed for these Ephesians in chapter 3 that they would grasp more of Jesus' love. And here is where it's going to change the husbands among them, that they love their wives. That it changes the wives among them, that they love their husbands. Christ's love is meant to transform our married relationships. And it's also meant to transform our friendships. The gracious love Jesus has for us is the love he calls for us to show to one another. Back in John 15, verse 14, Jesus told his disciples, you are my friends if you do what I command. And Christ is the standard for friendship. His compassion, his bearing with us, his patience, his willingness to make sacrifices for us. These are all the things Christ calls us to in our friendships. And if our friendships are dependent on Christ's love, then they will bring joy to us and joy to one another. And they will bring glory to Jesus as people see our relationships transformed. See, our friendships can glorify Christ. And our friendships can bring people to encounter Christ for the first time. We need to learn from Christ's love what it means to be a friend So, in this chapter of Ephesians, 
Paul prays to the Father that we may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. He prays that we would know that love because he knows that only when we understand something of his love for us will we gain a faithful vision of who God is, who we are, and will we be enabled to live for Jesus in our closest relationships. But there's one more thing that we need to know this morning from this prayer of Paul's. See, knowing Christ's love has the power to change us, to transform us, and it should be doing that in the life of our church and our individual lives. But as we finish this morning, I want us to remember one crucial thing about the love of Christ. Christ's love for us, demonstrated at the cross, shows us that Christ is not just our example. He is also our Saviour. And we need to grasp that this morning. See, if Jesus was just our example, if we left this place going, well, I've got to be more Christ-like, then we would all be lost. And I hope we can see that. So even as we pray to learn from Christ, to love our children, our husbands and wives, our, our friends more, let's be clear, we will fail in that. We will let one another down and other people will let us down. We will fail to love people as we want to. But that is why we need to recognize that Christ's love is at its fullest in his willingness to forgive and restore us when we do fail. See, Jesus went to the cross to take the punishment for our sins. And that includes the sins we will commit this year. We will let God down this year. We will let other people down this year. But Christ's love, Paul wants us to see, will never let us down. Christ is our faithful Saviour. And his love, unlike human love, is strong enough to overcome our sin, our pride, our foolishness. His love is strong enough to transform our relationships. It's wider, it's longer, it's higher, it's deeper than we could ever imagine. It surpasses knowledge, Paul tells us. But Paul also says, we can know that love. We can experience it in our life as a church. And Paul urges us, pray for that experience. Pray for your eyes to be opened to how precious you are in Jesus' sight. And then live courageously for him.